The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s, The Beginnings of Psychology, Associationism. Psychology as we know it did not suddenly appear on the intellectual scene. It is impossible to say just when psychology began, or who was responsible for it. Instead, we can only point to a number of currents that take us from philosophy and the natural sciences into something recognizably psychological. We are, therefore, going to turn our attention to two of these primordial currents. Associationism, as the beginnings of cognitive theory, and the introduction of quantification in the forms of psychophysics and intelligence testing. Associationism Associationism is the theory that the mind is composed of elements, usually referred to as sensations and ideas. These elements are organized by means of various associations. Although the original idea can be found in Plato, it is Aristotle who gets the credit for elaborating on it. Aristotle counted four laws of association when he examined the processes of remembrance and recall. Number one is the law of contiguity. Things or events that occur close to each other in space or time tend to get linked together in the mind. If you think of a cup, you may think of a saucer. If you think of making coffee, you may then think of drinking that coffee. Number two is the law of frequency. The more often that two things or events are linked, the more powerful will be that association. If you have an eclair with your coffee every morning and have done so for the last 20 years, the association between the coffee and the pastry will be strong indeed, and you will be fat. The law of similarity is number three. If two things are similar, the thought of one will tend to trigger the thought of the other. If you think of one twin, it is not hard to think of the other. If you recollect one birthday, you may find yourself thinking about others as well. Number four is the law of contrast. Contrary to the law of similarity, sometimes seeing or recalling something may also trigger the recollection of something completely the opposite. If you think about the tallest person you know, you may suddenly recall the shortest one as well. If you are thinking about birthdays, the one that was totally different from all the rest is quite likely the one that will come up. Association, therefore, according to Aristotle, took place in the common sense. It was in the common sense that the look, the feel, the smell, the taste of an apple, for example, came together to form the idea of the apple. For 2,000 years, these four laws were assumed to hold true. St. Thomas Aquinas pretty much accepted it, lock, stock, and barrel. No one, however, cared that much about association. 
it was just seen as a simple description of a commonplace occurrence. It was seen as the activity of passive reason, whereas the abstraction of principles or essences was far more significant to the philosophers. And that was the domain of active reason. During the Enlightenment, philosophers began to become interested in the idea of association once again. As part of their studies of vision, as well as their interest in epistemology, Thomas Hobbes understood the complex experiences as being associations of simple experiences, which in turn were associations of sensations. The basic means of association, according to Hobbes, was coherence, or contiguity, and the basic strength factor was repetition, or frequency. John Locke, rejecting the possibility of innate ideas, made his entire system dependent on association of sensations into simple ideas. He did, however, distinguish between ideas of sensation and ideas of reflection, meaning active reasoning. Only by adding simple ideas of reflection to simple ideas of sensation could we derive complex ideas. He also suggested that complex emotions derived from pain and pleasure, both simple ideas, were associated with other ideas. It was David Hume, however, who really got into the issue of associationism. Recall that Hume saw all experiences as having no substantial reality behind them. So whatever coherence the world, or the self, seems to have is a matter of the simple application of these natural laws of association. Here, Hume lists these three natural laws. Number one the law of resemblance, i.e. similarity. Number two, the law of contiguity. And number three, the law of cause and effect, basically the function of contiguity over time. David Hartley, 1705-1757, was an English physician who was responsible for making the idea of associationism popular, especially in a book called observations of man. His emphasis was on the law of contiguity in time and space and the law of frequency. But he added an idea that he got from the famous Isaac Newton. This association was a matter of tuned vibrations within the nerves. Hartley's basic ideas are very similar to those of D. O. Hebb in the 20th century. James Mill also elaborated on Hume's associationism. The elder Mill saw the mind as passively functioning by the law of contiguity, with the law of frequency and a law of vividness stamping in the association. Mill's emphasis on the law of frequency as the key to learning makes his approach very similar to the behaviorists in the 20th century. But James Mill is most famous for being the father of John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill. 
that so few now dare to be eccentric marks the chief danger of the time. John Stuart Mill was born May 20, 1806, in London, England. His father was James Mill, an historian, philosopher, and social theorist. His mother was Harriet Barrow, and seems to have had next to no influence on him. His father decided to use the principles of utilitarianism and associationism, in consultation with his good friend Jeremy Bentham, to educate John scientifically. This all seemed to work quite well. John Stuart Mill began learning Greek at age three, Latin at age eight, and at 14 he studied French, mathematics, and chemistry in France. At age 16, young John Stuart Mill began working as a clerk for his father at India House, headquarters of the East India Company. By 18, John was publishing articles on utilitarian philosophy. But at 20, John Stuart Mill had a nervous breakdown, which he describes in his autobiography, published in 1873. He attributed it, no doubt rightly, to his rigid education. In 1830, John met Harriet Taylor, a married woman. He remained loyal to her until her husband died 21 years later, at which point they married. Sadly, she died only seven years after their marriage. During this time, John Stuart Mill served as an examiner for the East India Company. He also served as a liberal member of parliament from 1865 to 1868. Quote, Conservatives are not necessarily stupid, but most stupid people are conservatives. End quote. He died at his home in Avignon, France, on May 8, 1873. John Stuart Mill's best-known work is On Liberty, published in 1859. His most important work as far as science and psychology are concerned is A System of Logic, first printed in 1843 and going through many more editions throughout the rest of the 1800s. He began with the basics established by Hume, his father James Mill, and others. Number one, a sensory impression leaves a mental representation, an idea or an image. Two, if two stimuli are presented together repeatedly, they create an association in the mind. Three, the intensity of such pairing can serve the same function as repetition. But Mill adds that associations can be more than the simple sum of their parts. They can have attributes or qualities different from the parts in the same way that water has different qualities than hydrogen and oxygen. So John Stuart Mill's associationism is more like a mental chemistry than a mental addition. John Stuart Mill agreed with Hume that all we can know about our world and ourselves is what we experience. But Mill notes that generalization allows us to talk with some confidence about things beyond experience. And Mill believed that there are real causes for consistent phenomena. This belief 
is often called phenomenalism. Mill defines matter, for example, as, quote, the permanent possibility of sensation, end quote. This perspective would have a profound effect on the 20th century logical positivism, associated with Wittgenstein, Ayer, Schlick, Carnap, and others. They provided the philosophical foundation for most behaviorists. Mill promotes a scientific method that focuses on induction. Generalizations from experiences lead to theory, from which we then develop alternative hypotheses. We go on to test these hypotheses by observation and experiment, the results of which allow us to improve our theory, and so on. This circular notion of scientific progress is known as the hypothetico-deductive method. In this way, we slowly build up laws of nature in which we can be increasingly confident. This method proved to be very popular among the scientists of John Stuart Mill's day. Mill more specifically outlines five procedures for establishing causation. The simpler ones go like this. One is the method of agreement. If a phenomenon occurs in two different situations, and those two situations have only one thing in common, that thing is the cause of the phenomenon. Number two is the method of differences. If a phenomenon occurs in one situation, but not in another, and those two situations have everything in common, except for one thing, then that thing is the cause of the phenomenon. Number three is the method of concomitant variations. If one phenomenon varies consistently with variations of another phenomenon, one is the cause or is otherwise involved in the cause of the other. Now this, of course, is the foundation for correlation which, although it cannot establish the direction of causality, typically does hint at some causal relationship. When it comes to psychology, Mill argued that psychology could indeed someday become a science, but it was unlikely to ever become an exact science. Predicting the behavior of human beings may be forever beyond our abilities, leaving us to limit ourselves to talking about tendencies. Mill's utilitarianism recognizes that happiness is not restricted to physical pleasures or the avoidance of pain, that there may be different kinds or qualities of happiness. He said, quote, It is better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. So, Although we certainly begin as simple pleasure-seeking creatures, over time, we can acquire far more humanistic motivations. Ultimately, this means that high moral values can be taught and are not dependent upon innate qualities of character. When looking at social issues, John Stuart Mill applies his expanded utilitarianism. Does a certain institution add to the human welfare? Or are there better alternatives? He argues, for example, that women 
should be allowed to vote, because women's self-interests can add balance to men's self-interests and lead to a better society. He argues for personal freedom, because it allows creative individuals to better contribute to society. On the other hand, John Stuart Mill notes that free market capitalism tends to result in inequity and poverty. And we, as human beings, would be better served by working together under some form of socialism. Thomas Brown, 1778 to 1820, of the Scottish school, puts the finishing touches to associationism. His laws of suggestion, i.e. association, were resemblance, contrast, and nearness in time and space, just like Aristotle's. He added a set of secondary laws, duration, liveliness, frequency, and recency, that strengthened his laws of suggestion. Brown considered as well the degrees of coexistence with other associations, constitutional differences of mind or temperament, differing circumstances of the moment, state of health, or efficiency of the body, and prior habits. Finally, Thomas Brown understood association as an active process of an active, holistic mind. Alexander Bain, 1818-1903. Bain was a lifelong friend of John Stuart Mill, and he connected associationism with physiology. Accepting the law of contiguity, similarity, and frequency, he viewed them, as had Hartley, as being neurological in their origin. Bain added the law of compound association, which says that most associations are among whole clusters of other associations. And he added the law of constructive association, which says that we also actively and creatively add to our associations ourselves. One of Bain's basic principles is immortalized as the Spencer-Bain principle. The frequency or probability of a behavior rises if it is followed by a pleasurable event, and decreases if it is followed by a painful event. This is, of course, the same principles that the behaviorists would elaborate a century later. Bain has an even larger role in the history of psychology. First, he is often given credit for having written two of the earliest textbooks in psychology— the Sense and the Intellect in 1855, and Emotions and the Will in 1859, both of which went through many editions and were used, for example, by William James. Alexander Bain also founded the first English-language psychological journal called Mind in January of 1876. 
Herman Ebbinghaus. Individuals like Locke, Hartley, Hume, John Stuart Mill, Thomas Brown, and Alexander Bain were essentially philosophers, not scientists. The first psychologist who made an effort to study association scientifically was Herman Ebbinghaus. Herman Ebbinghaus was born on January 23, 1850, in Barmen, Germany. His father was a wealthy merchant who encouraged young Hermann to study. Hermann attended the University of Halle and the University of Berlin and received his doctorate from the University of Bonn in 1873. While traveling through Europe, he came across a copy of Fechner's Elements of Psychophysics, which turned him on to psychology. Hermann Ebbinghaus worked on his research at his home in Berlin and published a book called On Memory, An Investigation in Experimental Psychology, published in 1885. Basically, his research involved the memorization of what became called nonsense syllables, which consisted of a consonant, a vowel, and another consonant. He would select a dozen of these nonsense syllables and then attempt to master the list. The reason for using nonsense syllables is because when one is trying to memorize meaningful material, the meaning of that material makes it easier to hold on to more information. By using nonsense syllables, words that were meaningless and unconnected to each other, Hermann Ebbinghaus was able to study pure memory. Ebbinghaus recorded the number of trials that it took to memorize the list, as well as the effects of variations, such as relearning old material that had previously been learned, or the effect of the meaningfulness of some of the syllables. Ebbinghaus's results have been confirmed and are still valid today. Ebbinghaus also wrote the first article on intelligence testing of school children and devised a sentence completion test that became part of the first Binet-Simon test. Ebbinghaus also published textbooks on psychology in 1897 and 1902. These books remained popular for many years. Hermann Ebbinghaus died in 1909, a clear precursor to today's cognitive movement. The laws of association would continue to have a powerful influence in psychology. The behaviorists, of course, focused on stimulus-stimulus and stimulus-response associations. The Gestalt psychologist elaborated on the various associations that they termed the laws of pregnance. Among the cognitive psychologists, there were various theories of semantic association. And the physiological psychologists talk about the neurological bases for associations. Yes, the idea appears to be here to stay. But then again, as Greek and medieval philosophers knew, association is just a simple description of a very commonplace occurrence. Thank you.